Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Big things come in small packages. That sounds nice, but not even my two-year-old is convinced. Sometimes, when we're dealing with big problems, we need big ideas, and we need them in big packages. Microfinance, as the name implies, can seem small. Fixing many of the environmental and social issues communities face is a local game. Well, financial technology is changing that game, and the impact can be felt around the world. In the first segment, I talk with Mary Ellen Iskandarian, Women World Banking's president and CEO, on how the WWB is partnering with fintech to drive local change on a global basis. JP talks with Arnaud Ajay from BMP Paribus, a global leader in sustainable finance, on the surprising connections between innovation and sustainability in the second half. Mary Ellen, maybe the place to start because you know, for an organization with a global reach and a large impact, I don't know that many people really know like the deep work that Women's World Bank do- actually does, right? It's kind of obvious when you put those things together to say, oh, I know what that is. And then you're like, but what are the specifics of that? Um, thanks so much for, for asking, Jason. I, I used to say that, you know, I hated being introduced as the world's best kept secret. So I'm glad we're we're kind of graduated from that from that place. But um, so we are a 42 year old um, NGO from our, our very start. We've worked globally and our mission really has never changed. It's been about getting access to the full range of financial products and services, not just microloans, but savings, insurance, pensions, the everything you and I need, payments, everything you and I need to conduct our financial lives to low-income women in developing countries. And I'd say for maybe like the first 25 years, that was tended to be more focused around microfinance institutions and supporting the leadership of those organizations as well as the end clients. But then about 15 years ago, when technology just sort of burst onto the scene and it, it really seemed that anybody who had a supply chain or a you know supplier relationship in any way with that low income woman you know was kind of fair game to deliver her financial services mm-hmm. and so our partnerships just just really expanded dr- dramatically so today we're working you know fully you know, of the 56 financial service providers that we work with in 34 countries, um, fully a third of them are fintechs. We have a couple of pan-African banks working in, in multiple countries, both digitally and, um, you know, and, and, and non-digital financial services. Insurance companies, fast-moving consumer goods are turning to, to be really mm-hmm. strong partners in things like supplier credit. Um, and wherever possible, we do it digitally. We do, you know, through financial, digital financial services, because that really is turning out to be the way last mile financial services are, are being delivered. Well, in the last mile, is so hard in this kind of micro and broad reach that you have to do. I'd love to hear more about some of the fintechs that you've partnered with. 
So, um, you know, maybe a slight plug here. A couple of years ago, we launched um, in partnership with the Singapore FinTech Festival, a FinTech Innovation Challenge. And we explicitly started looking for FinTechs that, um, yeah, maybe it would be great if they had female founders, but we were really open to whomever the leadership was, as long as they were looking to de deliver financial services, either for security, so savings, um, financial literacy, or, you know, outright prosperity, so digital lenders or insurance, mm -hmm. you know, insurance products. And so, you know, that that first year, and, and Singapore was very gracious and gave us two slots that would go direct to the um, their their uh, global accelerator day, and that first year I think was a perfect example of you know sort of the kinds of organizations that that were attracted to us. One is a, a company working in several African countries called Pula, which is a um, an insure tech. So they're providing um, agricultural insurance alongside sort of embedded with um, agricultural inputs like fertilizer and seed and, and taking advantage of that trusted relationship that many smallholder farmers, which in Africa is pretty much synonymous with, with women, um, and taking that trusted agent relationship, that, mm -hmm. that extension agent, that agricultural dealer is really a trusted person and uh, making that connection with financial services as well, because that's just, that is so fundamental really to anybody forming a relationship with a financial service provider, but particularly women, closing that trust gap is really, you know, sort of job one. And, and we find that it can also be one of the biggest obstacles to full adoption of technology. Um, the second winner that year was a company in Colombia called Aflore, which was kind of doing a, a kind of cool innovation on the microfinance model in that they were working with, you know, people that were trusted in the community. So not necessarily, you know, loan officers, but people who could make good referrals to their, um, their neighbors, people in their vicinity who had businesses who wanted loans, but then they had a, a you know, very sophisticated credit algorithm that they would run the referred credit through. If, it came out well on their on their algorithm. The referral would get a referrer would get a referral fee. If not, you know, try again. We were very intrigued because we were seeing while women referrers um, were making fewer references, they had a better uh, track record in getting the loans approved. Oh, interesting, interesting what the data can show. So. I love the tech bend, right? We don't often think with, you know, microfinance in an NGO being so tech driven. I'm curious on your thoughts broadly about the financial technology industry, you know, because it's long promised this idea of, you know, opening greater access and inclusion. Um, you know, Jennifer Tesh and I talk about this on the show all the time around, you know, where is the promise and how do we deliver on it? You know, is fintech really delivering on this promise? Well, I think, you know, you could, the way you could phrase it is, you know, fintech may have kind of gotten lucky with this, um, with this pandemic in a sense, I'd say technology has been a uh, technology and adoption usage has been a real um, silver lining for, for the pandemic. We saw 200 countries and territories around the world have some kind of COVID relief payment that was made through the government, 
the the majority of them were digitally delivered at least in part or mm. or or in whole many of them were sort of a repurposing of a conditional cash transfer that was already targeting women and mm. so you you had this you know very real you know uh, very scary in a lot of cases reason for a digitized payment going to women but it just brought literally millions of people into the formal financial system. And it, to the extent that a country, say, like India, which only had um, women recipients that could receive the, the COVID cash transfer, you had oh, wow. in a couple of weeks, you had 25 million new bank accounts opened, largely by women in order to take that digital payment. And so I think that now the challenge for you know, financial technology is we've got them in the system. They they saw the benefits of digital technology. Now let's keep them there. And so we've got to continue to give them services that make sense in their lives, that meet their needs. You know, in Bangladesh, Cambodia, we've worked with garment manufacturers, for example, who you know, wanted to be responsible, made payments to their workers when they had to close or kind of go in and out of lockdown situations, you know, immediately seeing huge value to a digital wallet. And so getting, you know, wallets onto the phones and into the hands of women workers and making sure they understood how to use them and have the confidence to use that wallet. Didn't, if they didn't have to immediately cash out, but keep that that money in the digital, um, the digital ecosystem. So I think, you know, we've had this this real opening of the door for financial technology, and now it's time for the the industry to to meet this new, you know, tsunami of new clients that they've um, they've attracted. Now I'm curious, are you seeing them stay in the system? Right? Was it a you know temporal you know blip that you know necessity is the mother of a invention, or in this case, the mother of adoption? You know, is there enough value in the system that they're continuing to engage with it, that it's in some sense may have changed their trajectory? So far, yes. And in in most cases, we've even seen, um, you know, there has been and and remains a, a really persistent gender gap in ownership of smartphones. And that's particularly prevalent, say, throughout South Asia. You saw for the first time this last year that gender gap reduce. Now, it's still 15%. There's still 15% fewer women who have uh, access to and ownership of um, an internet-enabled phone. But you've you know, it was 25 two years ago. So wow. you're, you know, you're really seeing the technology in women's hands. They're seeing real value. They're beginning to understand that there's an account underlying that phone. Um, you know, we had some great examples in um, in Indonesia, for example, which was one of those countries that had a digitally delivered um, conditional cash transfer that it made primarily to women for um, their kids' healthcare and education, and had some, you know great outcomes with health and education. They literally overnight repurposed that to COVID relief and doubled up the payments. 
And we had women, you know, coming to the the sort of village ambassadors for the for the payment and saying, you know, this is a lot of money. I don't. And my kids, the schools are closed. My kids aren't in school. Is there any way I can save this? Where can I save it? And they didn't necessarily understand that there was an account there underlying that payment that they could indeed save in. And so then that started raising questions like, oh, my husband knows about that account. I don't necessarily want him to know that I'm keeping money in it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so that that addresses really some of the, the issues when we think about women centered design that you've got to design around if you want women to, to stay in the system and keep using uh, the technology. Yeah, that women-centered design has always been a tricky issue, both around access rights and saving and kind of traditional roles in some of these countries. I'm curious, you know, how did that play out in terms of, you know, did they actually put some more safety and controls around that in terms of access or how have they been able to manage that? So it's a, it's a great question. So again, so far so good, and I, I've been you know tremendously impressed both by you know the financial regulators and the Ministry of Social Affairs because you know getting government agencies to play well together can often be the biggest challenge in these yeah. in these things. But they've they've recognized really what an opportunity this is to make massive changes you know virtually overnight into keeping people and women in particular in in the financial system so you know they they have um they've been very responsive to things that we've suggested i'd say the biggest thing where they kind of fell down on the job initially and and that was part of their engagement with us was they didn't really do the best communication around the changes in the system you know again mm-hmm. when a woman says okay the schools are closed and I can't, I don't want to take my kids to the doctor during COVID. This is what I'm supposed to be using the payment for. You know, they didn't really mm-hmm. explain very well. And I think, you know, there's a, a, a lot of talk about financial and digital literacy, but it really, it kind of needs to go both ways. The, the women are asking all the right questions, but they've got to be, you know, met with good answers and good, clear explanations from the, the payment provider. So, I mean, your enthusiasm for, the opportunity, right? This moment that has taken place that we can build on. What excites you most about the future? Well, you know, <laughs> um, I I I like to think about how how disruptive fintech can be and likes to think it is. And you know, you hear a lot about you know breaking things, and even the name of your podcast, Breaking Banks, is so great. But I really would love to see a challenge to the industry that that disruption isn't just, you know, disrupting the status quo, the people who are Hmm. currently um, getting access to services, just getting access to them through technology, perhaps a little bit faster or a little bit cheaper, but really being more expansive in the way we think about who gets access, who gets to come in, who gets included. If, and, you know, if you think about financial, the woman, uh, we we had for the first time uh, with this year's fintech challenge, we gave an award to female founders because we've, you know, that's another area where there's been very little disruption from the the legacy banking system in terms of the the gender composition of boards and of of it's such a founder driven industry and you're seeing so few women founders. So we really wanted to celebrate the fact that seventy five percent 
of the applicants to our challenge were women. And the, the organization that won, um, Ada Impacto, is doing, um, is has um, done a credit algorithm, alternative credit scoring off of WhatsApp data. And I really felt like they put it so well when they said, you know, the fintechs in, in, in Mexico and Mexico has a, has a fantastic fintech regime and has adopted, you know, a lot of, um, you know, great regulatory practices, you know, one of the earliest emerging market sandboxes, um, but they're just fighting over the same you know, few million clients that are already included. Let's think about expanding who who gets to play. So how do we do that though, right? Like part of it was the absence of the phone. I can't believe the number was so high that the um, tech gap was 25%. And it's great that that's been closed, but what other structural issues do we need to be addressing here? Well, you know, I think a lot of it is just kind of looking internally. <laughs> this, is an, this is an industry based on data that that runs on data this is the first time that a lot of these people are even showing up as you know data worthy clients and there's a lot of information about how they use products where they use products their frequency and so I really, there's some stunning information more on the banks than on fintechs about the number of organizations. It was a study a couple of years ago from the Inter-American Development Banks, 110 Latin American banks that um, only uh, less than 4% of them, so like four banks, yeah. um, were even gender disaggregating the data that they were collecting. We're even looking at you know how were men using their accounts versus the way women were using their accounts. And the ones that did kind of sheepishly told the researchers, yeah, we we collect the data, but we don't really use it in our decision making. And I think that could be such a brilliant um, area for disruption by fintechs. Use the data that you're collecting, see how it might be different in terms of usage patterns, and then just go for it. Build products around that data set around women. You know, I would guess that in the U.S., the situation is actually probably no different, that I think very few banks actually, you know, one, think through even looking at how some of the usage data, you know, plays out, but also this fear of, you know, will it be regarded as discriminatory keeps us from actually taking beneficial actions, you know, against it, right? Right. No, and that was, that was a huge issue and, and, and rightfully so, you know, that they, you didn't want to be, you know, discriminating, oh, this is a woman, so we'll give her, you know, discriminatory terms. But in terms of, you know, I always wondered about that because the insurance industry always, provided, you know, different products, different terms based on, you know, good actuarial data. So it, there, there is a precedent for the financial services industry to look at men and women differently and design products as they need them, as their life experience um, indicates. Well, you know, as we come to the end here, I want to close with one of the most exciting things that's going to be happening in 2022. You have a book coming out. There's oh. nothing micro about a billion women making finance work for women. Talk to me about the book. Oh my goodness. This is so exciting. Nobody asks about the book. <laughs> so this is, this is wonderful. I'm still getting used to being an author. So yeah, I, I like to think the title says it all. You know, if there were a, a market of a billion people that mm -hmm. is completely locked out of a service, I would think you'd have a mad dash to figure out how that service 
could be how that that market could be tapped. And somehow low income women just don't get that same treatment. And so the book really is making the case for how it's very good business, how it's really good for um, inclusive economic growth and you know, every time the IMF comes out, they seem to have, you know, gloomier and gloomier predictions for world growth. So if you're leaving, you know, trillions of dollars of economic growth on the table, that just seems so farsighted, uh, short-sighted, excuse me. But then it's really very good for women as well in terms of their health benefits, the benefits for their families, their communities. Fantastic. And you know, we'll have to have you back when the book is published, get you on your, your first speaking tour. If you look at kind of this huge opportunity that's presented, if a bank or a fintech founder wants to get involved with the movement and you know, providing services, that mad dash, someone wants to join the dash, how do you suggest they get started? What you know, can you provide? What sources do you go to um, to help accelerate this pace of change? Well, if you're in, if you're working in the emerging markets, please do come to uh, womensworldbanking.org. I mean, that is, we are, have from our earliest inception, we work directly with the financial service provider to help them reach that client. We've got people who can help you with product design, who can help you with marketing, who can help you with diversity in your leadership team and your board. And now um, in the last, so in the, in the last eight, nine years, we've actually also been an investor. So if you are looking to for a capital round that wants to see women-centered products as a new source of revenue, Women's World Banking is there as an investor and would be delighted to, to join you. What are your investment themes you know, with CJ's group? What, what do they focus on and what is the size of the round and do you have to be in an emerging market or can it be elsewhere? Well, the the Current fund that uh, that our mutual friend is uh, is running are is a global fund, but with a, a particular focus in um, in emerging markets. We're looking at financial service providers, but not just microfinance institutions. Our first fund was pretty microfinance um, centric. This fund is really looking much more broadly at not only different types of services, so say insurance or you know an, an insurance insurance technology company, but also um, you know other types of products. So our first investment, for example, was an affordable housing company in India that. Um, requires the woman's name to be on the title to the property that's being financed. And that asset ownership piece is so important to, to women's economic empowerment. And we just thought it was such a brilliant, brilliant idea. There were some really very clever investors um, that uh, had done the Series A. So we came into to Series B and are now doing a third round of financing. Um, our average investment size in this fund has actually been pretty small because we want to be around to, um, you know, to continue um, to, to for future rounds. We just made our single largest investment, $10 million in a, a fascinating P2P platform in Indonesia that's taking you know, funds from sort of middle-class, wealthier Indonesians, and then um, making microloans to poor women in some of the outer islands in Indonesia. Average loan size, $200. They take all the loan risk based on their credit 
um, okay. credit scoring algorithm, and then the donor, I guess, or the lender receives a, a, a fixed return. Oh, interesting. So it's back to some of the earliest days of marketplace lending, but with a you know ESG kind of twist, you know, <laughs> attached to it, right? Right, right, right. Good Fantastic. Way yeah. Um, what other sorts of things, if people are interested in pursuing investment, how do they get a hold of Women's World Banking? Well, as I as I said, that um, the the website is womensworldbanking.org and. Um, just you know, there's a CEO right to the CEO. I'd be delighted to uh, to take inquiries. Um, it's just a, it's been such a revelation for us how much impact we can have as an investor. Um, we do a lot of work not only on gender diversity within the organization, but then helping that organization perhaps reach those women clients that they didn't realize were out there or that they maybe didn't have the right product for. So we're a very active investor, not only in, in trying to get you to do things around the board table, but also um, helping you really drive additional revenue by having that women's focus in your business. Well, one of the things I love best about this is it's not being treated as the touchy-feely, oh, we should go you know, solve this problem, you know, from a philosophical or a moral, but it actually really is good business. And you guys think about it and talk about it like an investor. Yeah. Yeah. No, we've, we've now long, you know, long ago realized that if, you know, we're grant funded on the NGO side, not on the, the investment side, that's all, you know, real other people's money, but, and they expect it back with a market rate return, but on the NGO side, we're grant funded, but we just learned long ago, if, an organization does something just because we're providing the grant funding to do it and it's not commercially viable, then they're, as soon as we leave, the product leaves as well. So we do a customer lifetime value um, calculation on every product that we deliver and we will we will stay there on our own dime if we have to until we make sure that that's a positive number for you going forward. And we're just seeing again with the digital services, CLVs are higher for women um, then, then, then for men, as long as you get that that product mix right. Well, I love how you talk about it because, unfortunately, the nonprofit world is one of the most inefficient marketplaces, right? <laughs> there, where you know you can continue to have someone make a grant far after it's the utility, you know, it has been found. So, you know, love that you talk like a tech entrepreneur and how you do it. So thank you so much for joining us, you know, Marielle. I'm really excited um, to read the book when it comes out in March. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, Jason. Thank you. There's a new fintech platform that you need to know about. It's unlocked an investment previously only available to the ultra wealthy. Recently, this asset class has seen growth of 2,700%. It even outpaced the S&P 500 by 174% from 1995 to 2020, and almost every other asset class, even in economic downturns. That asset class is contemporary art. Surprised? The ultra-wealthy have used art to grow their wealth for centuries, and now you can invest in it thanks to Masterworks.io. They're the billion-dollar tech unicorn that has made investing in art by Picasso and Warhol as easy as buying stock online and returned 32% from a Banksy sale in 2020. Some of their offerings have sold out in hours, but you can get priority access to their newest one by heading to masterworks.io slash breaking banks. That's masterworks.io slash breaking banks. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash 
disclaimer. If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. And the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world. And our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs custom-tailored for your situation and your team to bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, we can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity, and the time to act is now. AlloyLabs.com. Hi, this is Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. And I want to tell you about the brand new book Richard Petty and I have coming out in November called The Rise of Techno-Socialism. This new book examines the philosophy of humanity as a species and how the 21st century is going to be the most disruptive, contentious period humanity has ever lived through. During the pandemic alone, we saw the wealth of the world's billionaires surpass $10 trillion for the first time. The richest 1% of Americans today hold more wealth than the bottom 90% and often don't pay taxes. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic in 2020. But in reality, artificial intelligence could disrupt even more jobs, up to 80% of jobs today. The new industries we're creating will ironically face labour shortages because we simply aren't training our students with the right skills today. In the first 20 years of the 21st century, we saw protests double from the 20th century averages, while attendance at these protests climbed over a 1,000%. At the heart of this is economic uncertainty about our future. And this is being amplified by the pandemics. It will be amplified by AI and automation, climate change, and of course, inequality. So how will the next 30 years play out? AI has the potential to disrupt, but also to reframe government, making big government small. Universal health care, free education, universal basic income, and massive mobilization of resources to mitigate climate change will all be part of the response needed to these seismic changes. The realization that humanity needs to work together may be the biggest lesson of all. In techno-socialism, we examined four possible futures, and three of those possible futures result in a chaotic and divisive world with rolling crises. But one possible future, what we call techno-socialism, makes possible an inclusive, planned and emerging society where broad prosperity is possible. The book is out for global release in November. Feel free to check out www.riseoftechnosocialism.com for more information on the book and where you can get your copy. I'd be very grateful for your support and consideration of this new book, The Rise of Technosocialism. I'm here now with Arno Auger from BNP Paribas who is giving a talk here at Money 2020. Um, what's the name of your talk, Arno? So I'll talk about fintech for climate change and how to empower our clients on this challenge. 
Well, and as deputy head of the Innovation Lab in San Francisco, you spend a lot of time thinking about environmental and social and governance and climate change is some of that. Wow, what does that have to do with fintech? What, uh, what, what, tell us a little bit, give us a preview of your talk. Yeah, so you know, as an innovation lab of a bank, so innovation lab of BNP Paribas, which is the largest bank in European Union and world fifth largest bank uh, by revenue, um, we are here to make the connection, the bridge, uh, basically in San Francisco between the fintech and the bank, right? And so BNP Paribas is also the world leader in sustainable finance. And we do that mostly with uh, all our investment banking activities, with all the green bonds. We are the world's second um, provider of green bonds. Um, but then, yes. Uh, Can you define what is a green bond? Exactly? A green bond, yeah, it's, it's a financial tool that lets companies to uh, to get yeah this, this financing, but attached with a specific uh, green aspects on what the, the asset will be deployed, yeah. Um, so, but that's true. That my, my, my area of expertise is more on personal finance. And so I was curious to see if indeed fintech could help us as a bank to empower our retail uh, clients and even commercial banking clients on this journey towards uh, sustainable finance. And so, yes, I studied a study with uh, the rest of the team uh, back in 2017 on all the fintechs that could be related with something to do with the climate. Okay, and we identified several players. Obviously, a lot in robot advising, but also even in lending, in daily banking, etc. And this is we. This is how we started to initiate partnerships here yeah, uh, for BNP Paribas with these fintechs. So, what's an example of uh, somebody you partner with? What do, what do they do, and, and how, how how do we make that green? How do we help climate change through fintech? Yeah. So, the first partnership we have initiated is with Open Invest, which is um, a robot advisor that now has been actually acquired by Chase. Um, but uh, it's a robot advisor that lets you align your investment portfolio with your values. So, if you don't want to invest with any companies, anything to do with uh, like um, the deforestation or anything any cause that you don't like, I mean, uh, with Open Invest, you can do it. And it's true that it was a tricky situations that we as a bank, we don't invest in coal, we don't invest in uh, tobacco and, and things like that. But uh, we, we don't finance any more these activities. But then if you are a wealth management client and you want to have your portfolio, uh, we didn't have so much of these capacities. So we partnered with Open Invest to let um, customers do so. And it's true that, think about it, if you think you like a good person for the planet, you drive a Tesla, you uh, you are vegan, and and actually all your your 401k is actually financing everything you ate. I mean that's kind of absurd. So we we try to also make sure that you can be consistent with your finance, with your values. So how about beyond just um, putting your investment dollars in more sustainable places? What else can fintech do to help improve climate change? Yeah, so uh, actually we also find like fintechs that can also, uh, based on your uh, transactions, um, measure the carbon footprint of your transactions. So to really show uh, where you can have an impact, you know. And so we partnered with a company called Greenly in France, and we even invested in another one like called Economy uh, to do exactly that to uh, have this capacity to 
uh, estimate the carbon footprint of every of the transactions. And today, uh, if you are a BNP Paribas uh, customer in France, or if you are a Bank of the West uh, customer in the US, uh, you can have this carbon tracker directly within your uh, daily banking app. And in France, we even have the capacity to give you uh, tips uh, to reduce uh, your your carbon footprint, in even with another fintech that we partnered with, uh, Climate Seed, uh, you can offset your footprint. So basically, really to align not only your investment, but your everyday purchases uh, with what could be good for the planet. Well, and how are customers reacting to this? Uh, what's uptake been like? Yeah, I, f- I think there's a good uh, there's a good momentum, and actually, even Bank of the West uh, uh, made a whole campaign about that, and we created even a checking account with one uh, percent for the planet. So, one percent of the revenue that the bank makes uh, on uh, this checking account goes uh, to to one percent for the planet that finance uh, environmental um, nonprofit organizations. And yes, we we made this big statement, and I think there's the the momentum is there, and we we saw that even sustainable investing grow significantly uh, over the past three years. I think it grew by 40% from like $12 trillion to $17 trillion today. And like a third of like total assets under management are today with sustainable uh, and impact investing. And if even if you ask Americans, there was a, a survey about that, like 85% of Americans are actually interested in uh, sustainable finance. But if you ask millennials, so younger people, like 95%. And so... Basically, yes, uh, we get made a big campaign of awareness to show that, yes, actually, uh, where you put your money matters for the planet and you can uh, also have an impact. And I think that's a big differentiator uh, because I think more and more people, they want to do well by doing good and they, they, they realize they can do so. And so, yeah, that's, the, that's, that's our competitive advantage, I think. And, and yes, like you ask, I think the, the popular momentum is there. How about outside of climate change? What other areas of ESG are you focused on as you're looking at innovative Yeah, yeah. so I'm personally uh, passionate about financial inclusion. So in ESG, you have environmental, but you also have social. And I think that uh, uh, like any sustainable move for the planet, if it's not uh, financially affordable, if it's uh, not accessible uh, like socially for the population, uh, that's still not sustainable. Uh, so that's really the another area of, of challenge is to, to work on that and how a bank uh, can be a partner for your financial health. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done about financial education uh, to improve the financial literacy of people, uh, to also use fintech to basically drive uh, people to understand their finance, to know where they actually spend money on, what they could do. And historically, it's true that financial planning was a monopoly of wealth managers. Uh, it's only if you have a lot of wealth that you can have someone to advise you on your money. And also money being a taboo topic, you don't really talk about it with your friends. And and so I think, yeah, there's a, that's why, I mean, I think two thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and if you're in the number one economy in the world, I mean, there's a problem there. And I think it's, it's less a problem of resources than uh, to let people know how to better manage these resources. 
Well, certainly agree with that. It's something we've talked about a lot on the show. So what's an example of something you're doing around the, that? Yeah, so that that's something we, uh, we, we're still working to, to develop even more uh, in, the, in, in the future. And, but yes, I think uh, all of these uh, that we try to integrate is all of the, the tips within di directly the banking app. So I think the, the way you can uh, improve Uh, financial wellness or financial health is both with financial education and with financial automation. So eventually uh, to, to let people uh, automatically save uh, and, and to all, all of these, uh, these tools in place. So this is, uh, this is yeah, we, where we build uh, the things and It's, it's also interesting that uh, culturally, if, if, if uh, your listeners are interested to that, financial literacy is less a topic in Europe than it is in the US. Because in Europe, especially in France or Belgium, where we are uh, strong, um, there's a welfare state. And so uh, education is kind of free, uh, healthcare is kind of free, and uh, retirement is taken care of by the government. So you have less uh, things to do, and financial services are less sophisticated. Right. Um, but, uh, but that's why it's something also... Uh, I hope from San Francisco, this is something we can say because still, anyway, uh, French people, European people need financial literacy and education. And, and so that's something we can also kind of import uh, thanks to uh, the big trend that we see. And uh, I was very uh, happily impressed that at the welcome talk of Money 2020, uh, the director of Money 2020 said that, yeah, financial inclusion is the main topic. Um, Magic Johnson also, uh, we, we might need that. So I think, yeah, maybe this year, this, uh, this is a topic of the year, like financial inclusion and more broadly, yeah, sustainable finance. Right. Well, uh, besides giving your talk, uh, what, what else brings you here to Money 2020? What are you looking for? What have you seen that's been interesting for you? Yeah, so again, my job is to meet the fintech, to know what are the financial innovations uh, on the market and to see if we can integrate that. So we can uh, actually work with fintech on three ways. We can do commercial partnerships, uh, like we did with Open Invest, for instance. Uh, we can do investment. Uh, we have actually historically invested in Chime, for instance. Uh, and we can even uh, acquire uh, fintech. Uh, for instance, in France, uh, we acquired um, the, the largest new banks. Uh, it's called Uh, nickel and it's actually new bank for the um underbanked so uh, for underserved population and it's very interesting to see that actually that the largest new bank in the u.s is chime and the largest new bank in france is um uh, nickel with also two million uh, customer and both are on these underserved market underbanked and and uh a non-prime customer, um, but to help them alleviate uh, their finance, finance on the journey. So yeah, my, my, my role is to know what's uh, possible and to see if we can actually integrate uh, these fintechs. Um, because basically, sometimes the, the business units, you know, that come to us as an innovation lab to, with a problem and ask us if we know a solution. But sometimes we know great fintech solution and like we did for climate, we approach the businesses and we say, okay, uh, maybe you can be interested into that and then this is how uh, we do business yeah find any new potential partners while you've been here uh, uh yeah working on it working on it yeah but uh but it's it's also interesting yeah, to see the other talk and to see also like other banking peers and uh uh yeah i've been all the talk but yeah um again i was very uh, happily uh, impressed that many talks were around this topic of financial inclusion and sustainable finance so it, it means that we're on the right track yeah Well, what did I not ask you you'd, you'd hoped we could talk about today? Um, 
No, yeah, I, th I think that's uh, that, that's uh, that's already a lot of good topics. But yeah, um, um, I'm excited also to to listen to the other episodes that you will have, and and that's why when I'll be uh, flying back to San Francisco or while running in the San Francisco street, I could listen to your podcast and the rest of the show and and make an extension of my 2020. Maybe pick up a few things you didn't hear. Exactly. So Arnaud, thank you and merci. Uh, merci for, beaucoup for, for joining us on the show today. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks. <laughs>